0: Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined by Hui Huen, the Alabama woodworker. Hello. Hey. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's (laughs) Woodshop.
1: How are you?
0: (laughs) Hey. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. If you would like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshop life if you'd like to share your support. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what do you got for us? Okay, so this is from Sean Vela designs. I imagine his name is Sean
2: and his last name is Vela. Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that is Sean Vela, but it's all one word. Hey guys, love listening to the podcast and was hoping you could give me some help with a problem I ran into. I put a nice new glue line saw blade on my table saw, and when I went to switch out the blade to my multi-purpose, I physically can't get the blade off of the arbor. It is not the arbor nut that was removed easily. It is the blade itself that is stuck on the arbor. Has this ever happened to you, any of you? And what would be your solution? I've been thinking about heating up the blade to expand it off the arbor, but wanted to see if you had any other options. Any help in this matter would be greatly appreciated. Thank you again for the awesome podcast. Well, thank you, Sean, for the question. And I have had, while I've not had an issue with trying to get the saw blade off of the arbor nut or arbor, I've had issues with trying to get pulleys and whatnot off of, um, drive shafts on, on some motors. And one of the things that I did was heat up the drive shaft itself and heating it up will expand it. But then what I did was I cooled it down with, uh, an ice cold piece of uh, cloth, you know, dipped in water and then put in the freezer and whatnot. And that, that definitely, I was able to get the pulley off of, the shaft of the motor very easily doing that. I don't use a gear puller. I I tried to gear pull it. It was just, it didn't, it didn't work. There was something terribly seized up about it, but Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, you've got that nice brand new glue line rip blade. I'd worry about, (laughs) I'd worry about heating up the blade because I imagine that they're tempered in a certain way. And that might, I don't know. I'd, I'd worry about it. I think I would probably try heating up the the arbor before I tried heating up the blade.
1: Why well, don't you worry about the temper of the arbor too?
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I would. I, you know, I I'd I probably would just, contact the manufacturer if it's, the, if it's a fits a blade specific issue and be like, look, can I get another thing,
1: one? Yeah, this thing is stuck on my my arbor.
0: I
2: also thought about putting like either some mineral spirits or something on the arbor and the blade itself to just, just in case if there was some debris that was caught up in there, that maybe it could dissolve away with mineral spirits or, or lacquer cleaner or something like that. But have you guys had any issues with trying to get off certain parts or whatnot? And what was, uh, what was your
0: solution? I'll go with, uh, I'll go with Sean first. No, I've never had... This issue before, and you know, like I mentioned, out if this is you know specific to this blade, I would 100% recommend manu calling the manufacturer, or emailing them, or doing whatever and getting another blade because I can't think of an easy way to not have to fight with this every single time you put it on and take it off. I mean, I sure as heck wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, that's going to be a serious problem, especially in the future. I mean, not just now, but what if you want to use the blade again? I mean. Which they will. I mean, I would imagine every single project. I mean, there's, it shouldn't be like that. So I'm guessing that they've either got some, you know, it's a glue line. So it's a, what is it? A Freud blade. I wonder if they got too much of that. or if they got too much of that powder coating or something in the, I don't know. I mean, I would definitely, I'd be reaching out to them and asking for a new blade because I would not want to fight with that. Yeah. Maybe uh, whatever you have to do
2: to get it off and then don't put it back on that that's a good good point good point guy any any suggestions for sean
1: at all well the uh what sean had said before has happened to me i had a freud i have it, I actually have it on my saw right now which is a freud glue line rip and the first time i put it on it was pretty tight then when i went to take it off it wouldn't come off because the paint that they used to paint their blades or the powder coating or whatever the hell they put on it i don't know Inside the 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 hole for the arbor, and it wouldn't release. So I ended up just taking a, a wrench and like pinging the side of the the table saw blade. You know what I mean? Just like banging it against it.
2: Yeah, yeah, just jostle it loose.
1: Yeah, but not really super hard. Just <laughs> right. enough, just enough to, to loosen it up. And I, I squirted some PB Blaster on there. PB mm, Blasters, a... Yeah. Uh, like an oil that's used for frozen nuts and bolts and stuff like that. Yeah. You gotta rust it on. It works really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left, put that on, let it sit for an hour. And then I started whacking it with the, 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 wrench and it eventually came free. And you could tell where all the paint that was on the inside of that, that hole had locked onto the arbor. Well, um, even in which case, case, I just took some emery paper, ah, yeah. like mm-hmm. wet dry sandpaper, and got rid of it on the inside. And I still use that blade today.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that even if he does get a new blade from the manufacturer um, to to run a piece of emery cloth on the inside of that uh, blade, uh, the blade hole, so that uh, so that you can kind of remove there some of that. Nothing
1: in- worse than having extra paint in your blade hole. <laughs>
2: Nope. Uh, I heard that more than once. Never you have? Before. No, I have not. <laughs> no, I was going to say, i never. <laughs> but that's a good one. Before. I like it. I like it. I, I, I might use it from now on.
1: I'll get to print it on a t shirt.
2: Yeah. Well, Sean, I hope that helps you. Uh, try those things. Uh, definitely the PB Blaster is definitely something you should, should try, maybe even before you do any attempt at heating up either the blade or the, or the arbor. I think that would be a better idea.
0: I I wouldn't, if I had to do all that, I'd be like, nope, new
2: blade. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, Let's go ahead and and go to Guy. You've got the next question.
1: All right. I've got a question from Peter and he says, he says, he asks, oh, he says, and then he asks, anyways, like most woodworkers, I start out with pre-milled lumber at mostly three quarters of an inch. Once I got a planer, I found myself often planing lumber down for aesthetic reasons. So I mostly make smaller projects and three quarter inches is just too thick for my taste. My question is beyond looks, when do you worry about thickness choice? Is there a weight determiner, length of boards, etc.? Ever made a mistake and went too thin to suffer later? Hmm. As a slight follow-up, do you ever purposely buy thicker material with the anticipation of resawing over planing down, like from three-quarters to half-inch and just wasting material? Peter. So the first question is, you know, beyond the looks or aesthetics, is there anything that determines the, the thickness of the boards, like weight or strength or anything else? Myself, I think that people get too wrapped around the axle about strength tests they do strength tests on mortises versus this strength tests on this versus that and you know what for the most part you're not parking a car on your furniture right it's pretty strong to begin with what you what i really worry about more than anything else is sagging Mm mm-hmm if you make the, the the wood, let's say you've got a, a, a tabletop and you're not putting an apron all the way around it. You've got metal legs that are bolting to each end and there's nothing supporting it in the middle. Mm-hmm. If you go with a thinner wood, let's say a three quarter inch top, there's a pretty good chance it's going to sag quite a bit. Right. But then if you get like an inch and a half thick top, there's going to be less chance of it sagging. Absolutely. Um, so that really determines quite a bit of it. I'm building um, six 10-foot tables at work right now, and they all have aprons that go all the way around them. The, the, it's very specific. The tops have to be an inch and a half thick, and the legs have to be four thick, and the apron has to go uh, two inches in from each edge. I'm all cool with that. There's nothing that says how thick the apron has to be. Right. So those aprons are a little bit less than an inch thick, mainly because of weight. Right. When they're standing up an edge like that, they're still plenty strong. It's a weight issue. Um, you know, these 10 foot, three foot wide tops, they weigh 150 pounds. I don't need to have a 150 pound base, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, I want to make it as light as possible, but still it's strong because of the way the wood is turned. Um, I guess it just comes with experience. Mm-hmm. You asked you said, you know, worry about as far as uh, the looks go, I think looks have a big part of that. I mean, just taking a sixteenth of an inch off a, a top sometimes can make a huge difference or a sixteenth inch off a leg can make a huge difference. So aesthetically speaking, uh, the thickness of the wood is really important and don't get caught up. Well, it's gotta be three quarters of an inch or it's gotta be an inch and a half. It's gotta be, you know, three sixteenths or five sixteenths or nine sixteenths. It can be all over the place. Yeah. It really depends on how it looks. Um, The second question is do you ever buy thicker material with the anticipation of resawing over planing down? But he was very specific on this, like from three quarters to half inch and just wasting material. So there's times I want half inch material. And if I want half inch material, I buy six quarter stock.
2: Yes, yes.
1: Rip it down the middle and then I've still got plenty of room to, to get it down to half inch. Right. And get it flat. So, but there are times when you've got half, you want to get a half inch and all you've got is three quarter inch or four quarter. Just plane it down. (laughs) You can either plane it down and end up with chips or you can resaw it and get rid of the bulk of it. And then just a couple passes through the planer. Yeah. To me, it's six of one, half dozen the other. Um, But so what do you think, Wee?
2: Uh, Well, with his first question, uh, I have made the mistake. So my current dining table, I think the tabletop is a little too thin. Just doesn't match the base that well. And it was a matter of this is the material I had, which was a a very scant four quarter material. And I was very lucky to get three quarters out of it. And, you know, I am actually (laughs) making a new dining table, but. You can tell like the base looks, you know, kind of I don't want to say beefy because it's not like a beefy base, but it, it just doesn't fit the aesthetic of the table. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's, it's too heavy. It's too heavy yeah. for the tabletop. And it was one of the first dining tables I've ever made. And I that was what I had. Right. And so I went with it. And looking back, I'm happy I did it because it actually was a lesson that I learned as well, which was this is too thin. And there's a reason why you know, you spend more money to get the five quarter or the six quarter stuff. And yes, it does become wood chips to get it down to the thickness that you want. But in the long run, it it, it would have been worth it because then I wouldn't be making another dining table for myself, uh, for my wife. Um, in terms of buying thicker material, I do that all the time. I buy a lot of eight quarter material and I'll, yeah. I'll resaw it down. Um, even if I'm trying to get you know, six quarter or an inch and a quarter top or inch top, I'll still resaw it down, and I'll, I'll find a way to use that material later. Um,
1: the three quarter but, inch, but times, it is it is more expensive to do it that way. Eight quarter <laughs> stock is more expensive than buying four quarter stock.
2: Abs- absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, but I, I like having I like having the freedom to do that, as opposed to I'll get down to doing it. And I'm like, oh, man, I, I really hope I hit my mark. I really hope I'm able to flatten this out and get an inch and a quarter from, you know, one and a half inch stock. You know, it, it, I've gotten into those positions before. It's like, man, really hope I'm able to get this flat. And I hope that there's no crazy internal stresses that, you know, I'm going to have to contend with where it's just going to go all over the place. And believe me, we've all we've said this before before wood's going to move. It's going to move. It's going to move. It's going to no, move. It
1: doesn't. That's an old wives tale.
2: Oh, well, okay. Well, I'm wrong. No, uh, it's <sighs> going to move. And I don't know. I've, I've gotten close before and it's an uncomfortable position to be in. Whereas if I bought the eight quarter and I kind of felt like I had a little bit more wiggle room to play with and, and I can take off a little bit more. I don't have to be so, stingy with how, uh, how much of, how many passes I'm taking on the, uh, on the joiner, you know? So yeah, I generally go with the thicker stock and then we'll resaw it down. All right. How about you, Sean? What do you, uh, what do you got for us? My turn. Here we
0: go. Um, (laughs) Sorry. You know, I primarily look at uh, on, you know, I, I'm not going to, I see more issues with people making stuff too thick than I do too thin when it comes to the, to the design of furniture pieces. Again, this is just my opinion. Uh, you rarely see something design-wise like, man, that is that's too thin. It doesn't it just doesn't fit. You know, I see more pieces that are too thick, they have too thick of peat legs or tops or this or that than I do too thin. Um so you, you know, it's just one of those things where you don't have to stick to half inch material or three quarter inch material or one inch material. You know, there's not a standard that you can only use those. You know, plane it down and use three eighths, or if you use making drawer sides on a smaller piece, make them make them a quarter of an inch. Don't make them a half of an inch. You know, you, you, there's it's perfectly okay to to play around with that and go with thinner pieces. You don't have to make it it's super chunky, thick pieces. Uh, you know, I think it makes it look good with the with the the thinner pieces. It just I don't know. I, I see, Like I was saying before, I see more, in my opinion, mm-hmm. bad designs because of thicker pieces than I do yeah. thin.
1: What yeah. I see a lot is in drawers. Mm. Every, you know, People are making small drawers out of three-quarter inch stock. See, even mm. in big drawers, I never make my drawer size bigger mm. than half an inch. Right.
0: Now, as far as the uh, follow-up question, uh, very rarely do I plan something out of having, you know, buying thicker stock to resaw it, unless, you know, unless I'm maybe making a big, a big door and I want to do a book match panel. If I need half inch material, you know, I'm going to start with four quarter. If I need, you know, if I'm, if I buy eight quarter, it's because I'm making, making some, you know, legs, whether that be, you know, inch and a half legs or, you know, an inch and a quarter. If they are an inch and a quarter, I will slice off a little piece just to save and can use later, but you know, most likely I'm I'm buying something that's as close to that, and I don't I don't do a whole lot of resawing for uh, just to to save material myself. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you're resawing more for the aesthetic than the. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I it. yeah. I let those chips fly on the planer. I mean, I don't. I, it's just <laughs> you know, it's a it's a crap shoot. because then you got to buy thicker, yeah. then you know you got to get six quarter, then you got to resaw it, then you got to you know it's no. I'm just gonna run it through there yeah yep. i dig it
2: yeah I, I hear you i hear you all
1: right all right. i think I, it's it's my question
0: oh yeah. sean's yep yeah
1: it's squeeze or sean's
0: no it's mine who we Huy was we was the first one you're no. the second one he's, he's just messing with you now come on sean you should know him better than this right now so come on what go ahead all all right. Right. you kind of mumbled there i can understand you <laughs> Um, I'm just making sure he, he fell asleep last episode. Yeah. I'm, I, I've
1: got a cup of coffee in front of me right now, so I'm, I'm okay for now, but we got to keep it lively.
0: Okay. That's no problem <laughs> with me. You know, me, right, this is from Jim. My question is concerning marking gauges. A lot of the suggested beginners kits include some sort of marking gauge when watching YouTube. Very rarely do you see a marking gauge and even more rare is someone that is putting one to use. Well, I understand what a marking gauge is is and how it functions. I I don't see a place for it in my workflow. Do you gentlemen use marking gauges commonly in your workflow? And if you do, what do you use? When do you use them? I cannot read tonight. Do you gentlemen use marking gauges commonly in your workflow? And if you do, when do you use them? Jim, uh, you're, what you're going to see primarily people using marking gauges for is when you're busting out the hand tools for the most part, scribing tenons, dovetail shoulder lines, um, you know, and occasionally marking out a rabbit, uh, that's when you're going to start to see a lot of, um, a lot of the marking gauges, uh, get pulled out of the workbench. And a lot of the stuff that you see on YouTube there, I'm not saying all of them, but a majority of them are using power tools only. You know, they use a, a, a tenoning jig or a dado stack to cut the tenons, or they use a dovetail jig for the, like a, a, a router dovetail jig for the dovetails. Um, you know, they're, they're not really doing a lot of hand tool work. Um, Again, it depends on which channel you watch, uh, just because, you know, they're more of a, a power tool user like myself, but I will, when I cut dovetails, uh, I will pull out the, the marking gauge. And then yesterday I was out in the shop and I was cutting a rabbit on, um, on a veneered piece. And I was using a rabbiting bit at the router table. And then you obviously working with veneer, you know, you don't want that to tear out. So, did a test rabbit cut, uh, set the marking gauge exactly to the size. And I scribed a line, uh, with just to give me a a clean shoulder so that the rabbit didn't tear out that veneer. Um, they come in handy. Do I use mine on every project? No, I don't. Um, because again, I'm, I'm heavily using power tools and I don't take the time to scribe for tenons. Um, you know, if you've got a nice clean blade, you may not have to, um, but it, you know, if you're, if you're getting some tear out, obviously you want to use that to get your nice clean shoulders, but you're primarily going to see that when they start to bring out the rest of the hand tools, uh, that's when you'll start to primarily use the marking gauge. Um, but do you have a, do you have a place for that in your workflow? I, you know, I'm, it, it just depends. Are do you use power tools only? Uh, Do you do any hand tool um, cutting of joinery? If you do, then you're definitely going to need one. But if you stick to only power tools, then, you know, you probably won't use one very often. You know, I think it's definitely something you should probably have for when you start to, you know, advance your skill set. I think you'll start to pull it out and using it more and more. Um, Like I said, I used mine the other day. Now you have a related question. Do you guys use marking knives? I understand marking knives will give you a more accurate results, but again, rarely do you see YouTubers using marking knives. Well, YouTubers is kind of a you know it, it's a it's a it's a big arena. It,
1: it's a real mixed bag there.
0: Yeah, it, it is. I mean, you could go from yeah. I don't know who you're watching. I don't know. It all depends. But um, again, it all just comes down to. When you're using, you know, when you're hand cutting some of these dovetails or tenons and, uh, and you're using a, uh, you know, you're using a, a combination square and, you know, you're marking your, your layout lines and all that's when you'll, that's when you will use it. Um, again, when you're using the rest of your hand tools uh, and that's, you know, I've not, you, I don't use mine every project. Heck, if I'm just building a simple cabinet, I don't, I don't, I can't see myself using it. And it's just, you know, I will probably use it around the same time that I'm using my marking gauge. It's when I'm doing dovetails or or, or something like that. But, you know, your mileage may vary watching YouTubers to determine what type of uh, hand tools or any tool in general to use, because it all goes back to what you're doing in your shop versus what they're doing. So, you know, that's uh, I think you should have one. I mean, you're not, you're not going to be throwing your money away. I mean, you'll, you probably will use it eventually. Uh, I think it's a good, uh, a good tool to have when you're having your kit. How often do you, uh, guy, how often do you use your marking gauges and marking knives?
1: Well, I've got a, a marking gauge that I made. Uh, I was based off the plans and woodworking. I th- find woodworking. I think Matt Kenny is the one that wrote the article and I built it pretty much exactly the way he had put it in there. I rarely use it. I've used it maybe like once over the last, once or twice over the last four years. I'm not a big hand tool user and yeah. a marking gauge is exactly what you, what you had just mentioned, Sean, you know, marking out rabbits, dovetails, yeah, you know, uh, tenons, tenons, all that stuff. I, I use power tools for everything. So, I really don't need it. my marking knife, however, yeah. I use quite a bit. Yeah. I've got several different marking knives and each I find a, a different use for each one of them sometimes but I do use those a lot for relative dimensioning. Relative dimensioning is for those that don't know it's like taking let's say you got a, a case piece and you got to fit a divider in there instead of measuring it, you put a piece of wood up to the hole. And then you can take a marking knife or even a pencil and mark where that board needs to be cut. Yeah. Um, I use a marking knife quite a bit for that. I actually carry one around in my my pouch at work. Um, I've got one in my apron when I work at home. I use it a lot. Uh, I find it very handy. I
2: myself am pretty much the same boat as both of you guys. I'm using my marking knife a significant amount more than when I'm using my marking gauges. My marking I have two marking gauges, and, and both of them uh, are very similar. They're that kind of wheel-style marking gauge. You know what I'm talking about, right? And I use it predominantly if I'm cutting dovetails or tenons by hand. Uh, my marking knife I use... All the time. and See, when I'm thinking
1: marking gauge, I'm thinking the the one where it's like a a block of wood and then a post that comes through it and then a cutter on the end of that post. Isn't that a marking knife?
2: No, I I thought that was a marking gauge as well. But then I think Veritas makes the one a marking gauge that has the wheel cutter on it too right is that not yeah, a marking gauge? I, no I they do
1: I, I guess they'd all both be marking they're just different type of i've I've got a, a wheel a wheel gauge I use that a lot more than I use the one that's got the metal the 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 pulse uh, that yes. Goes through the yes yeah they're both yeah. marking gauges yeah. yeah
2: okay okay um but uh, uh I use the round wheel style marking gauge. Um, mainly when I'm doing like cutting tenons or mortises um, by hand. Uh, I use my marking knife a lot more. Um, and just like you said, Guy, it's it's more so like relative dimensioning. So like, for instance, if I'm doing some type of finger joint or, or I did this recently, if I'm doing some type of finger joint, I'll go ahead and, and cut out uh, the one part of the finger joint and then made it up to the workpiece, and then using my marking gauge, I don't have to measure. I'm just lining it up, butting up against it, and using my marking knife to to scribe where uh, the the mating portions of the finger joints need to be. And then I'm just going to the table saw or uh, you know roughing it out on the bandsaw, and then you know just truing it up with a, with a chisel, even in that sort of situation. But yeah, I'm not I'm not using the marking gauge nearly as much as I'm using a marking knife, and and. Mm-hmm. When I'm using the marking gauge, it's again, like Sean and like you guys said, it's mainly for like sort of hand tool use.
0: So you got a marking gauge, which has, um, the, uh, a, a pin, you got a cutting gauge that has a knife instead of a pin. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So then you got a mortise gauge, which I'm And then a has... marking wheel? Yeah. wheel. yeah. A wheel, what's still a marking gauge is just a wheel type. Yeah. I'm sure somebody's probably telling us over the uh, podcast while they're listening. Uh, no, then you got, you a, got it all wrong. <laughs> then you got a panel gauge. Yep. But the, the wheel is gauge. just one form. I like the, you know, I've I've always had the wheel, but I wanted to give the pin a try. Just, you know, just so kind that I of like can, a
2: scratch-all type thing.
0: Well, just something that comes to a point instead of being round. Mm -hmm. So that way I can stop and start on exactly the, on the line that I need instead of going beyond it a little bit or not being as deep, you know, because it's round, but I've always just worked with it. It works fine. I mean, it's, it, they're definitely nice when, you know, you're going to be making a cut
2: cross grain. Um, Yeah. I will use them sometimes just to prevent tear out.
1: You can just use it to sever the fibers before the bit hits it.
2: Right. But oftentimes, if I'm doing that, uh, again, I'm probably still using the marking knife because it's just kind of quick and easy. and It's there. Nothing to say. All
0: right. Well, I'm going to go back to you, Hui, for your second question.
2: All right. This question is from Tyler, and this is an interesting one. Hey, guys, have, you, have any of you taken a chance on wood species that are uncommon both in woodworking and lumber yards? There are many local species in my area, which is north Arkansas that I could get, but wonder if people don't use them because they're garbage or or they're just not good for commercial sales. Some of the trees are black gum, Osage, uh, let's see, black gum, Osage, pawpaw, pecan, cottonwood, and dogwood are some of the ones that he mentioned. So I've recently, I shouldn't say recently, this was probably about two years ago, I made my daughter's changing table cradle out of black locust is the honey locust, honey locust, honey locust. I think black locust is a, is a wood as well. And I thought it was really neat and I thought it looked really great. And then I started using it.
1: (laughs) And you found out why people don't use it to make furniture.
2: (laughs) And I found out why people don't use it to make furniture. And yeah, Listen, Osage Orange is one that a lot of wood turners use. I think pecan is also used, but not that much. Black gum I've not heard being used often. Pawpaw, dogwood, cottonwood. I've not heard a lot of <laughs> folks use those woods before. And probably for good reason, I'll go out on a limb and say, yeah, it's probably not the greatest wood to to use for making furniture. Also, because it's probably just not readily commercially available either. Like I said, I, I tried honey locust and I kind of looked at it and was like, you know what? Yeah, it's kind of neat, but I think I would have been happy using cherry as well. <laughs> um, I was after I finished and I got a bunch of this stuff that I had actually resawed myself. And I said, I thought to myself, yeah, I'm just going to give this stuff away. <laughs> it's not fun to work with. Uh, Sean, I know you work with a couple of different exotics, um, but have you worked with any of these like sort of unusual name? Uh, you've used Osage Orange, I think,
0: right? Huh, that's bizarre. How did you know that?
2: Because I I, I, I I mean, I've talk. tried it.
0: I never I had one board of it that my lumber dealer gave me or maybe I bought. I can't remember. I just didn't like the look of it. So I never really? used. Yes, yeah, so I never. Is I don't it know orange? what. I, no pink. I just didn't like the look of it. It just looked boring to me. <laughs> it looks orange. So I ended up just, uh, I can't remember what I did with that. Probably just threw it away. Just ran it all through the planer, eight foot board down to a quarter inch and then tossed it. <laughs> no, I i don't know what I did with it, but I never used, uh, I never used it for anything furniture wise. I know a guy gave me, I believe when I was up there, he gave me, what was it? A piece of, was it pecan?
1: No, I don't have any pecan.
0: Well, not anymore. You gave it to me. No, I've never <laughs> had it, period. You gave me a, You gave me something.
1: Was Came it for... Cortison Sycamore?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay, never mind. Okay. Sycamore. That's the, only,
1: that's the one I was going to bring up, yeah. All
0: right. Well, that's, that's the only one I've used out of that list is uh, Osage Orange, and I wasn't a fan of it. Just didn't like the look of it. Uh, sycamore, I think, is related to honey locust, is it not?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, I get, I get people asking me all the time questions about what if I walk up to a tree, I'll go, yeah, it's a tree. What kind of tree is it? I don't know. It's a tree with branches. It's got <laughs> leaves on it. I don't know. I don't know anything about that stuff. I don't know anything about exotic woods, weird-ass woods like pawpaw. What the hell is pawpaw? <laughs> I, <laughs> I haven't no heard of it. never heard of it. And no. if you showed me a piece of it, I'd go, I don't know what that is. You'd be like, that's yeah, pawpaw. I know what that is. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, great. I I. I 99.9 percent of the time I'm using cherry soft maple walnut or poplar yeah as a secondary wood that's mm-hmm. it that's it period and I may use you know some exotic veneers but for me an exotic veneer is like curly cherry. <laughs> What do you, wait a minute, what do you got going on for your desks? You have. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. okay. So,
2: sorry.
1: Yeah. It, it, the only thing I've ever bought that was like, I, I guess you could call it a domestic exotic would be that quarter sycamore just cause it looks so damn cool, mm-hmm. but it's hard to work. It's fuzzy is the yeah. best word to describe it. It's just, it's tough to work but it's got a really cool look to it and i still have some of that um but other than that you know i've seen stacks of you know black locust and honey locust and this and that i just, i just walk right by it i'm saying well if, if people aren't making, and, and you said it before both of you guys if they're not people aren't making furniture out of it there's a good reason for it yeah so, you know, that's all I can, that's all I can say.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 basically stick with the domestics. I mean, your maples and walnuts and oak, cherry. Yeah. White oak. Yeah. I like white oak. I, I like white oak too. So, well, Tyler, I hope that helps you. Sorry. we weren't <laughs> <a> Better <laughs> help because we don't know what you're talking about. Never use black gum, paw pod. T- pe- well, I do paw, have pecan. Paw?
1: I don't know. Is that a type of tree? A pawpaw tree? (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. I guess it's like chestnut or something like that. I I looked it up and it kind of looked. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Um, Cottonwood, dogwood. I mean, I know what dogwood is, but aren't dogwood trees like they don't? They don't get very big, do they? They don't get very big. Yeah. So I'd imagine maybe wood turners might use like dogwood for small trinkets and things like that, but. I wouldn't imagine building furniture out of it because, I mean, the all the dogwoods I've ever had on my property or that I've seen have been like sort of short, short not very long, you know, um, trunks at all. You know, just kind of having limbs going all which way, and that that can't be easy to work with if if you are making or I don't know what you could make with it. So. Well, Tyler, hope it helps you. <laughs> With that, we're going to pass it on to Guy. You've got your second question up.
1: All right. I've got a question from Tom. And Tom writes, gentlemen, I greatly enjoy your podcast. Well, thank you, Tom. I have a question about staying. Ooh. I just finished a large dining table. And like most other projects, I'm very disappointed in how the finish turned out. The table is red oak and I stained it to a medium brown followed by three coats of general finish armor seal satin. I didn't go cheap on stain. I forget the brand of stain, but it was like $35 a quart and was custom mixed at my lumber supplier. Is there any tricks that you guys can recommend to get a more even end product? The top is six boards that are different grain patterns, so maybe I'm expecting too much. Also, Guy, I heard your comment a few episodes back about only using pipe clamps, and I kind of snickered. But I'm gluing up this tabletop, which is 7x42. My Bessies couldn't begin to compare with old reliable pipe clamps. I used dominoes for alignment purposes, and it took a pretty good squeeze to pull everything together. I'm a believer. Well, I'm glad you're a converted pipe clamp user.
2: There you go. Um,
1: Stain. I used to get people that come up to me and say, well, I want it to look like this walnut over here. Can you make it out of maple and make it look like that? And I would look up them and say, no, I can just make it out of walnut. But isn't it more expensive? Yes. Well, I just want it to look like walnut. Okay, well, then we'll make it out of walnut and it'll look just like walnut. Um, cherry is another one that people want to get the look of but don't want to pay for it it's really you know in the scheme of things it's really not that much more money no it's so not big of a difference. but as far as stain goes i prefer to use dye than stain the difference between a stain and a dye is that stain usually is just dirt mixed in an oil or a water base i mean it's literally dirt That's why you have to mix it up. And that's why all those big clumps of goop at the bottom are. Um, When you go with a dye, the, the particles are much, much smaller and you actually can take that and put it in an alcohol solution or water, if you like, and put it on. Some of the best stain that I have used was actually a Sherwin Williams commercial grade stain. And, uh, It was cherry that I put on cherry to give it an older look, and it was beautiful, man. It was just perfect. Um, The secret to getting good stain or an even color of stain is to try to get the 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 grain match, the color match of your boards as close as possible beforehand. Um, If you've got one board that's you know really really light in comparison to the other boards it's still going to be lighter after you stain it you can try to put more stain on it but that's a real tough thing to do um, you can also try to spray your stain you can also just if, if if i'm going to use stain i tend to stain not dye i tend to flood the surface
2: with, be, the with the stain with stain. the
1: stain yep, yep. Uh, I said, I, I don't try to like wipe it on evenly. I flood it and then I wipe it back. Yeah. And that's, I've had the best results with that, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, we've got a, uh, the guy that does our finishing at work and we stain a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff comes out stained and he's the one that does it all and it's all commercial grade stain. But he's, I, I know he's, I think he sprays a lot of it, but most of it he just got, he just has a rag and a pair of gloves and he just <laughs> slops that stuff on, lets it sit for a minute and then wipes it off. Yeah, and that's it. The, the, um, that
0: was going to be what I was going to say is I, I wish we knew what he was disappointed, you know. Yeah, about. well, there,
1: that, there's that, there's that thing, you know, how, what's, what, how does a woodworker usually ruin a project? Finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say: If you are going to stain, don't sand past one hundred and fifty. Correct. A lot of people will sand up to like, oh, I'm sand sand to two hundred and twenty, get super smooth. All you're doing is closing that wood off to the stain. Won't yeah, and it I won't enjoy. stain correctly. It won't stain stain evenly. Only sand to one hundred and fifty. So, wow. uh, what what do you think about all this, Sean? Um,
0: yeah, so it's it's a complex question because I need more information. You know, if he's using six different boards and, you know, they got different grain patterns, perhaps, you know, you're just having some, you you need to perhaps put a, a, a wood conditioner on to help even out that absorption as well. If you're having some crazy gnarly grain on one of the boards or something like that, perhaps a, a conditioner would help, help even that out a little bit. Um, you know, it could be the way that you're applying it. Um, you know, maybe you're not wiping it off fast enough, or maybe you're wiping off too much. Maybe you're not wiping off consistently. I mean, it just, I I wish I knew what, what Tom was very disappointed in how the finish turned out. Um, and yeah, I've, I've made the mistake of having a sample board and sanded my sample board to the correct grit, but went too high on the piece because I was just sanding all of the pieces and I hit the top up to you know 220 or 320 and you're going to get a completely different look than Mm -hmm. stopping at the 150 so you know i just wish we had more information but you know make sure that you're applying it right make sure you're sanding it right and you know and make sure you make a sample board because that probably could have helped you avoid doing the entire top um if you didn't like the sample board
2: yeah I really have nothing more to add than what you guys have already already talked about. Uh, I've not done hardly any staining whatsoever. I attempted to restain one of my mother-in-law's chest of drawers, and it came out so awful. I said, "We're painting it." <laughs> and we ended up painting it. And we ended up painting it with like a general finishes. Um, I guess a milk paint or whatever. Uh, it was just, oh, it was just terrible. I don't know what I did wrong. You know, I sanded everything back um, and it just it just would not take properly. And I think probably what my mistake was, I sanded too high of a grit and it just did not absorb properly. But it was, you know, just all different colors all over the place. And um, I just told her, we're, we're painting your piece. I can't I can't get it right. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's about all I can add. Is just you know my mistake from that. So yeah,
1: well, with Tom Tom getting the the, the commercial stain from his lumber su- supplier was actually a smart move. Yeah, because that that varathane and Minwax and women. Minwax stuff you get at Lowe's and Home Depot or Menards or wherever, I I, I really hate to say the words, but they're crap they have a they i don't know i've tried those so many times and i've been so so disappointed in how they come out i know everybody that talks they talk about it all the time how crappy this stuff works yeah go find a sharon williams commercial commercial dealer in town or somebody that sells you know whatever in the, at a, at a at a commercial level have it mixed it is more expensive but some of the stain is really good and it works really well i've used it a couple times and that's why i said what we use at work works really well um but we don't use the you know the cheap stuff from the box stores the big box stores so yeah
0: and sometimes staining just doesn't look good yeah (laughs) i mean a lot of people you see pictures on the can and like dang it looks really nice but you know It's hard. I mean, especially if you're a woodworker, because you know you're you're being extra hard on yourself. But you know, oftentimes when you stain stuff, like I've stained poplar numerous times, even with conditioner and this and that, and and, you know, from afar it looks amazing. But you know, if you're a woodworker, you get up on it, you're like, yeah, it's it's the color isn't consistent. It looks nothing like cherry that you were trying to stain and match. But to anyone else, they're like, dang, it looks awesome. Thank you. But sometimes we're just. We're just too uh, we're too hard on ourselves and expect too much. And at the end of the day, you're staining red oak. you know, we, we needed more information from why Tom was disappointed, I think.
1: Mm. All right. who's got the last question?
0: That would be that would be me. Sure. Hi. All right, this is from Dan. It seems that no matter what I try, it's hard to make great miter cuts. I have a saw stop with an Osborne miter gauge, an older radial arm saw. That I've tried the broken fence technique on, and I seem to still have trouble with miter's. I do all kinds of woodworking for segmented bowls, though rarely to picture frames to simple miters. It always seems to have issues. Is the solution the capex? If it's really amazing, as the domino is, I'll spend the money. But is there a better, less costly solution? You guys are awesome. Thanks. Before I answer, what are you guys familiar with the broken fence technique? Nope. No. I have okay. no idea what the hell that is. Yeah, broken I don't know what that is. broken fence technique, huh? 70. Did you look hey, that oui, up oui. Google that. Yeah. No, I'm on, I, I'm on it. No, I didn't look it up because I, I figured a guy would know. Maybe it's something because he has a, you know, I don't know broken fence broken fence technique. But either way, um, Dan, if you're not getting clean miters on your table saw, you just need to probably take a step back and dial in the table saw a little bit better. Uh, you know, I've Unless you know, no offense, but I had I've had the saw stop. I've had a Craftsman before that the two two one two four. I don't know why I still remember that um, <laughs> hybrid saw. And then before that, I had a what is they what are they called? Skill saw. It was a sixty nine dollar job site saw. Yeah, sixty nine dollar Black Friday deal. Now that one could not cut miters, but any saw that's more than sixty nine dollars that's decent you should be able to get miters on. So you have a saw stop with an Osborne miter gauge. The first thing I would do is I would make sure that, that the, the blade is parallel to the miter slot. The first and foremost, make sure you can get square cuts. And then I would, um, you know, make sure the blades tilted to 45, make sure that your not your blade, your miter gauge is 90 to the blade and make a cut. I mean, and and if you want to get repeatability, set up a stop block, Let's say you're making a square box. all the pieces are six inches long. Set a stop block and just make your cuts. But the key is to make sure that your table saw is dialed in. make sure your miter gauge is 90 to the uh, blade And I cannot see a single reason why you, you you shouldn't get pristine miters on your saw stop not because it's a saw stop, but because it's it, it's a it's a cabinet saw. I mean I don't care if it's a, a laguna, a grizzly a whatever. I mean, you should be able to dial that in so that you're getting perfect miters on your saw stop, on your table saw. Period. Um, unless you know, unless it's a sixty-nine dollar Black Friday deal, but yeah, I would start with with going back to your saw stop because if you're not able to get mi- clean miters on your table saw, you're probably going to have more issues than that. I would say that something's not not dialed in just right on that. Now, as far as you know, is the solution the capex? it may be a solution. I know Guy speaks highly of the Capex. I've never used the Capex to cut miters. I've only used, I've only used it once. And that was when I was at, at Guy's house. Um, you know, I don't cut miters on anything except my table saw. I don't use my miter saw, nothing. So I, I would, I would take a step back and dial in your, your, your table saw and, and, you know, perhaps the broken fence technique. Um, I don't know what that is. I was just going to try to make a joke, but I don't even know what that is. So, yeah. so I looked it up. Okay. Yeah. And what I saw, saw, <laughs> uh,
2: what I see is a radial arm saw set to 45. And then there's a fence that the radial arm saw basically to get a zero clearance is ripping through. And there is a broken fence board or, um, basically a box that he's, that this person has created. And that box is up against the fence. And you take one piece, butt it up against the upper side of the box, cut it. Then you take the other piece, put it up against the uh, vertical p- part of the box, or in this case, it's um, um, it's perpendicular to the fence. And then you butt it up against that, and then you cut it. <laughs> it, 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 it it's basically creating a jig to make like picture frames on a radio alarm well, saw. we
1: will sounds like way too much work
0: yeah we will it, share that in the show notes because um yeah yeah it's it a little complex.
2: bit complex but i i see what they're doing yeah you're it, it, it's easier to make a box with you know without miters and then basically butting up pieces up against that square portion to create the yeah. yeah the 45s anyway
0: yeah sounds like the broken fence technique if you I mean that sounds more complicated than dialing in your table saw so i highly recommend taking a I step he, back and dialing in the table saw
2: i think you should dial in the table saw i think he can you know he he can get a relatively inexpensive relatively inexpensive incra miter gauge that's very good well, he's got
0: an osborne miter gauge
2: i mean any I, miter I, gauge I don't, yeah i don't know i don't know how good i've never used that. i use
0: a i use a Are Craig. they pretty good uh, I'm sorry, guy. Are they pretty good? Yeah.
1: The okay. Are pretty good. They're not yeah. cheapies. Yeah. I yeah. Mean,
0: yeah. I've used the, the built, I use the stock one. I've used the Craig. I've used my, you know, yeah, there's any miter gauge should work fine. Yeah. As long as it's not a sloppy POS, you know, any miter gauge, I, as far as the Capex guy, I know you're a true believer of cutting miters on the Capex straight out of the box. So maybe mm-hmm. you can speak to that a little
1: bit. well, Let's, let's, I don't want to talk about the Capex. The Capex is a great saw and I can make picture frames on it all day long. No problem. There you go. But it's also $1,600. Let's try mm-hmm. to find uh what's his name?
2: Dan. Dan. You know,
1: let's try to find a solution for Dan that isn't going to cost him $1,600. Um, and it sounds like he's doing a lot of, uh, making a lot of small pieces for segmented turning mm-hmm. and a miter saw is not a good way to cut those. It's way too much action on your arm. It, it's just not a good way to go. Best place to do it is the table saw with the sled. The, the, some of the reasons, I guess you have to break it down why the table saw or how the table saw can fail making a good miter cut. Mm-hmm first you have to make sure that your blade is perpendicular to your miter or is parallel to your miter gauge and yet you Mm -hmm. gotta use a dial caliper and you really gotta Mm -hmm. get it good the second problem is that when people buy miter gauges the miter gauges the the bar can be sloppy inside that miter track yeah so some of the manufacturers like Incra, I think Craig has something on theirs, not sure of the Osborne, but they have ways that they have little nuts in there that you tighten up and things expand and contract and it makes it so it it, it goes, it doesn't wobble inside the track.
0: Like right, little set right. screws that go through the yeah, side. Yeah, like little set yeah.
1: screws. That's the second thing. The third thing is the blade. You're cross cutting. If you're having a problem with that, it, it can be you're using a uh, not a combination blade, but a general purpose blade, like the like the like a forty tooth woodworker too. Yep. Okay. Those can still burn when you're, especially when you're cutting a miter, and if it gets a little burn mark on there, you got to recut it. Yeah. yeah. You got to recut it. Get a, a like a seventy like seventy two or eighty tooth uh, cross cut blade, mm-hmm. and put that in your saw, and yeah. you will get cleaner miter cuts.
2: Yeah,
1: and the last thing is that when you use a miter gauge and it's at forty five you have to make sure that that piece is locked onto the miter gauge. It mm-hmm. can't move because if it moves just a little bit as you're cutting, and when you cut, you know, you've got the miter gauge at 45 and you're pushing it through the saw blade that it wants to get pulled into the blade. Yeah. So when it pulls into the blade, that's what can really throw your miters off too. So yeah. all those things together can result in a very bad, frustrating day. Yeah. Here's what I recommend. And I'm going to recommend a product. And they have been a sponsor of mine in the past. But I am going to recommend it because I truly like the Capex. I am a true believer in this product. And that is the Incra 5000 miter sled or crosscut sled. Yeah. I think it's around $350 or $400, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that sounds about right. But it's a big platform. It's got uh, T-slots so you can lock in your wood to it. The nice thing about it is how you calibrate it. So it's got a – you decide which side of the the, the blade you're going to put it on, the left or right, and you build it. And it's got a panel that you actually run through the saw and cut off. Okay. And then you take like even just a cheap 12 inch, you know, uh, triangle, not like the, the ones from Harbor Freight, the big orange ones that actually are pretty accurate. You take that and you can actually calibrate the fence right off that saw cut. Yeah. And it's just, it dials it in. It's just perfect. It's just perfect.
0: Now, to be fair, though, if you're having those issues that you're having now, getting that anchor is probably not going to fix it. You well, probably you need to well, do all the first steps first.
1: Yeah, and that's that's why I said so. You you have to. I would get. I'd recommend checking your blade against the miter slot. I'd recommend getting a a, a dedicated crosscut blade. Mm-hmm. But then the anchor will solve the, all the other problems. Yeah. Because it, it 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 can adjust for slop in the miter gauge. True. Yeah. It has hold downs to the fence. Mm-hmm. So the piece won't move. And it's the, the beautiful thing about it is it is easy as heck to dial in perfectly. Mm. And the, the fence locks and it can go up to, you know, whatever. I think it's up, up to like a four foot length with a stop on it. But since it's got that little piece that you cut off, that actually stays next to the saw blade. So if you're doing segmented pieces for segmented turning, mm-hmm. you can put that thing at, you know, 23 and a half degrees. And it, it goes down to tenths of a degree. It's got a vernier scale on it. It goes down to tenth of a degree. You can dial that thing in. Use the scale, get it down. And you can lock your piece on there, and you can cut it, and the pieces won't go flying. And it's just easy. Boom, 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 boom. It's a very nice sled for what you need it for. I, I I'd highly recommend it. Take a look at it. Yeah. The oh, I wanted to add
2: one thing because uh, he mentioned here. I, I don't, I don't know why I missed it, but he mentioned segmented bowls, mm-hmm. and I, I, I was trying to do something similar, but for the apron on my big table. Round table, expanding table that I had made recently. And my buddy, Dave Moncada, who is does a lot of turning, um, I asked him about it. And he says, Yeah, I use what's called a wedgie sled. I was like, A wedgie yeah. sled? What the heck is that? He says, Go to seg- segeasy, S E G E A S Y dot com. He says, And you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a pretty neat little thing. It's unfortunately, you do need a template that is set to that in order to make the wedgie yeah. sled work. But, but that's,
1: but that's, that is a specific, very specific to segmented. It's term, a very yes. specific per, of yeah. purpose, and with the something like the the anchor crosscut sled, it mm-hmm. can be used for all kinds of things.
2: No, I, I agree. I agree. And I was be, just I was just, be just making the comment. Trades. Right, right, and I was just making that comment to, to look into it for something very specific to segmented bowls. And he does say though rarely. Though rarely.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I I would recommend, yeah, just me because I'm cheap. I would dial it in before buying anything. (laughs) Uh, You don't, you don't need any of that other stuff to cut miters on your saw stop. You don't.
1: You've got it. You've got that anchor sled, don't you? And I
0: rarely use it because it's so bulky and it's heavy. It's bulky. And if I, if I'm cutting miters, I now have a dedicated miter sled that's way smaller, or I just use my miter gauge just because it's yeah it's just too bulky and two pieces yeah and, I have it I've uh, had, I, I,
1: I I've got it right near my saw and I can put it on and off in like 10 seconds well, I do yeah. too
0: but it's just it's easier for me to grab a miter gauge and go to yeah, town on I it. Dig
1: it depends on what I'm doing
0: yeah I mean the saw stop that you have Dan the the miter gauge that came with it should very easily be able to cut miter uh, miters perfectly put a sacrificial fence, put some sandpaper double-sided or backsided, whatever sandpaper on it to hold a piece. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't slide dial in your table saw and clamp and cut them. Yeah. 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 It sounds like you need to probably take a step back and dial in your table saw. Yep. Yeah. But with that out of the way, um, that is our last question. And now we're going to, uh, discuss what we got going on in in the shop and I'm going to pick. Uh, who am I going to pick first? Uh, we ask a guy what he has going on in a shop. (laughs) Guy, what do you have going
2: on in your shop? (laughs) I'm asking you. I'm, I'm following direction there, Sean. That's right. Guy, What do you got going on in
1: the shop? So it's to me. Uh huh. Yes. Uh, I'm still working on my desk.
2: So, you do some Still veneer work. work.
1: Yeah, I had a little problem. What, what exactly went on there? As a perfect storm of stupidity. I, it's when you use high, when you have high, I was using like waterfall, uh, not like, I was using waterfall babinga. Yeah. Which is highly figured. So, it needs to be flattened. Mm-hmm. So, I flattened it, dried it how I normally do and I went to town working on it I used a cold press veneer glue which is just PVA with some extra solids in it and the veneer was nice and flat everything was good I put down the glue I put the top on there was you no, know, I didn't put too much glue on it Everything was good, and I put a call on top of it and put it in the bag. And mm-hmm. then I took it out of the bag, and what had happened is, is the edges of the, the veneer had set before the inner part did, and the veneer wasn't perfectly flat, nor was it dry enough. Uh, so what happened is, is as the pressure hit it, it creeped out towards one side and it buckled. So I have all these little ridges on one side of it going up to six inches to the inside. So that whole side is just toast. You're going to have to redo it? Well... Um, I guess I, I really need to talk about is why it happened more than anything else. And it had really more than anything else to do with the drawing. I, I spoke to, uh, I, just, I, I not verbally on the phone, but I, I DM'd back and forth with Craig Thibodeau, who's mm-hmm. probably one of the top veneer guys in the country. Um, oh, yeah. And he literally wrote a book on it, too, I believe. Yes, you know, he did. A very good book. Yes, um, and I talked, and he said, "How long did you how, did did you did you flatten?" I said, "Yes." Did you dry it sufficiently? I said, "Yes." He goes, "How many days did you let it dry?" I said, "No, about twenty four hours after I took it out of the paper." And yeah. he goes, "Yeah, you need to leave, leave that sit for about three days." I'm like what? He goes, "Yeah, about three days." And it has to do with the highly figured nature of the, be- he said it can be a real bear. And that's, yeah. that's really what it was, is I didn't dry it properly. And he said, I shouldn't have used that glue. He, he uses a lot of epoxy and polyure- polyurethane glue. I, really? I, yeah. He uses a lot of polyurethane. and he's I,
2: not, I not urea? No. no.
1: I said, I can't, huh. I can't use polyurethane glue because it's, it's, you know, Ninety percent humidity out here, man. I put that out and just just go and turn it into foam. Uh, epoxy is too messy. I should have used urea resin, but I was out mm. and I got lazy. So uh, okay, I'm not going to go to the store and try to find some wildwood. I'll just I'll just use yeah. the stuff I have in, on the on the shelf. Yeah, and it was it was a bad choice, and I paid for it. So I am not. Going to buy more Babinga veneer because it was really expensive. Yeah. Um, I have some very, very nice quilted cherry veneer. Okay. And that's what I'm going to put on top of it. Okay. So that's what I've got. That's what nightmare I have going on in my shop right
2: now. And and, and you put in an order, or have you received your order of urea resin? <laughs>
1: No, I just went to the hardware store and picked up a can. Of Weldwood. Yeah. yeah, DAP Weldwood. It's, it's yep. all, that's all it is. I don't need to buy anything fancy like the Unibond 800 or anything like that. There's no reason for it. Right. Um, what about you, Sean? What do you got going on in your shop?
0: Um, Mr. Well-
1: Boxmaker, Mr. Expert Boxmaker.
0: Nothing, just uh, slowly making progress on the box. Didn't have a whole lot of time out there. Same old thing, uh, same old song and dance. Um, I got the sandwich done. I got the, you know, the what I believe to be wing a veneer on top and curly maple on the bottom. And uh, rabbits cut and uh, yeah. Now I'm just going to start cutting the miters and putting it together. Cool. Nice.
2: Well, I've got my base assembly to my wife's farmhouse table glued up. So happy with that. Came out well. Uh, I did plane down and flatten what will be the tabletop for it. I have not edged it yet, edge-jointed it yet. Um, But I have been doing a lot of work in the new shop of setting up. I've got a whole bunch of um, nice two feet wide shelving installed along the perimeter of two walls. Um, so it's going to be great to just store jigs and uh, things like a pocket hole jig or things that I don't use as often, but, um, but that I need to stow away and have access to on, you know, a regular occasion. So got all that done. Very happy with it. I, I also, um, I also installed one of those, um, dustbin meters have you you guys ever what? used one of those it, it, it's a light sensor meter that tells you when
0: uh, your dustbin no is? I, yeah yeah sorry no i got a clear bag i don't have one of those fancy units i can just oh. look at mine Yeah, mine, mine has that mine
1: <laughs> came with that built into it
2: yeah I, I i bought one for my for my oh so so when your when your bin gets too high you get a red light or whatever yeah yeah so i, I actually I got an
1: electric shock you get electric shock and yeah, I have to attach an electrode to my nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
2: not I'm not taking that out. I'm leaving it. I, it in. I can attach it
1: anywhere I want.
2: All right. Well, I'm leaving it, it in. Doesn't matter. Um, but I, I installed one of those two and um yeah, it works pretty well. Uh I actually got two of them. The first one came and it was not there was something wrong with it. And they sent me another one. So sent Where'd them. you get it from? Uh IVAC. IVAC. Okay. Yeah um ivac uh fill level meter i think it's called anyway yeah works so far it's working much better the first one there was something wrong with uh with the wiring on it second one came and they
0: sent it out pretty quick so happy with it so far but we'll see anyway that's all i've got going on so I'll think that I'll do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshop or DM us through Instagram at woodshop life. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. If you haven't done that, please go do so because it really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can find me online at simplecove.com or at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. We, where can they find you?
2: All right. Uh, Alabama woodworker.com. All the links to my Instagram or all, all the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you?
1: Uh, you can find me typically in my shop at work or in my office. If you want to look at my stuff online, just go to guys wood shop on, uh, Instagram. And dot com. And dot com. All
0: right. Great. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. See you. See you. Bye. See you later. Bye. 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 Bye.